Welcome to Cato Audio for November 2009. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, former Federal Election Commission Chairman Bradley Smith details why speech in politics must remain free. Cato foreign policy analyst Malou Innocent reviews the ungovernable trap in Afghanistan. Harvey Silverglate details how we're all criminals. And businessman David Goldhill talks about how American health care killed his father. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. In June of 2008, the Supreme Court decided the Heller case, finding an individual right to keep and bear arms within the Bill of Rights Second Amendment. I'm here with two-thirds of the legal team, Clark Neely, senior attorney at the Institute for Justice, and Alan Gura, an attorney at Gura and Pazeski in Washington, D.C. Gentlemen, welcome. So what has been the fallout since the Heller decision in terms of how states and localities think about and act upon the Second Amendment? Well, we really need a green light from the Supreme Court, and we're hoping to get that green light this term in a case I'm litigating called McDonald versus City of Chicago. As some of your listeners may know, the Bill of Rights originally was conceived only as a limitation upon the federal government. It was thought that states would never violate your rights. And if they did, then you were fairly close to your local state government and you can get relief through the democratic process. Unfortunately, of course, after the Civil War, we changed our perception of this. It became no longer tolerable to have a constitutional system where we had protections from the federal government, but state governments and state and local officials could run wild terrorizing the people and oppressing them, depriving them of all their rights. And so in the wake of this history, the 14th Amendment was ratified, and the 14th Amendment commands the states to respect all of the privileges and immunities of citizens of the United States. And that means, and it was understood by everybody, to protect people from state and local authorities, to have state and local authorities respect their basic constitutional rights. That language has never been given sufficient protection. However, over the years, the Supreme Court has used the 14th Amendment to make sure that our rights are protected one by one, and now it's time to see if the Second Amendment is one of those rights. Frankly, what is frankly one of the greatest acts of judicial activism on the part of the Supreme Court, five years after the 14th Amendment was ratified, the court essentially wrote out of the 14th Amendment the Privileges or Immunities Clause, which was really, frankly, at the heart of the 14th Amendment was the provision that was intended and understood to protect Americans' fundamental rights against invasion by state and local governments. The Supreme Court apparently felt that this was an improvident shift in power from the states to the federal government and disregarded the text and the original understanding of the Constitution and simply refused to give force to the Privileges or Immunities Clause. And this case, McDonald, is a wonderful opportunity to um, invite the court to go back to engage the 14th Amendment in a truly originalist way. And if they do so, as Alan says, they will absolutely find that among the rights protected is a right to keep and bear arms. How has the court incorporated various others of the uh, Bill of Rights up till now? Well, the court has ignored the Privileges or Immunities Clause. It read that part of the text to be almost completely meaningless. However, the court would look at the Due Process Clause, the clause that tells you that states may not deprive you of life liberty or property without due process of law, they've read that to mean that liberty has substantive aspects. And so it's not just a matter of dotting the I's and crossing the T's. At the end of the day, the deprivation cannot be one of a substantive right that you have. And over the years, the court has determined that different rights that are spelled out in the Bill of Rights, as well as some other rights that are not spelled out anywhere, are in fact aspects of liberty that states cannot violate. And so we've seen most, although not all, of the Bill of Rights selectively chosen, selectively incorporated through the Due Process Clause, but we've yet to see a full, complete incorporation of the Bill of Rights and as well as any sort of historically correct protection of your unenumerated rights. One of the problems with substantive due process is that it was not really the provision that um, appears to have been understood or intended to protect most of the rights that we hold dear today. Those rights were intended to be protected through the Privileges or Immunities Clause. And so the argument is that if the court goes back and really engages in the kind of originalism that we saw in Heller, it will have to confront the history of what was going on at the time, try to understand why that history prompted an entire amendment to the Constitution. And in doing so, the court will realize, hopefully, that the protection of fundamental rights, like the right to keep and bear arms, to own property, to earn a living, 
was both intended and understood to be protected by the Privileges or Immunities Clause, and in doing so, reverse the slaughterhouse decision and respect the text of the Constitution in the 14th Amendment as opposed to what I think are really, frankly, the justices' predilections for majoritarianism and judicial minimalism, which seems to be something the court is very tends to favor these days as a matter of sort of prudential law, but is not really the text of the Constitution in our view. Give us that history lesson then. The I hear it constantly repeated, the infamous slaughterhouse cases as if the word infamous is part of the title. What is that history lesson, Alan? Well, in the slaughterhouse cases, you had the city of New Orleans impose a monopoly on the trade of uh, butchering. And if you were outside the monopoly, that livelihood was closed to you. People sued and claimed that we are American citizens, and as such, the 14th Amendment guarantees us certain privileges and immunities. And if you have any aspect of citizenship, it is the right to pursue a livelihood, to engage in the common occupations of life. And instead, what the court did is they said, no, the only rights of American citizenship that are protected by this clause are those rights that come out of the creation of the federal government itself. So you have the right to visit the American embassy in Paris, perhaps. You have the right to travel to the Congress. You have the right to access the waterways of the United States. And these are the rights that states cannot interfere with. However, your great traditional natural rights, your rights to a livelihood, your rights to engage in any lawful pursuit, to make use of property, the course of rights, and of course, your rights that are codified in the Bill of Rights, your right of free speech, your right to keep and bear arms, all those rights are ancient and pre-existing. They do not depend upon the Constitution in order to come into creation. And therefore, you must look only to the state government for protection of those rights if the state wishes to protect them. The federal Constitution does not actually protect you from state actors. You know, in a larger context, what was going on uh, throughout the South in the wake of the Civil War is that Southern states were trying to keep particularly freed blacks in a state of constructive servitude. And they were also suppressing and terrorizing anyone who supported equality and the enjoyment of substantive rights uh, on the part of these people who they called freedmen at the time. So the Reconstruction Republicans who were in charge of Congress at the time saw this going on. There's abundant testimony about you know the suppression of liberty in the South, and they were determined to stop it. And they did stop it. And the way they stopped it was by adopting, proposing, and ultimately ratifying the 14th Amendment. And unfortunately, the courts have really shirked the duty that was placed upon them by the people of this country when they ratified the 14th Amendment to basically give promise to its meaning, which was to ensure that all citizens throughout the entire country were able to enjoy basic substantive rights, basic fundamental rights like the ability to defend yourself with a gun if you need to, to earn a living and to own property. And these are rights that the court has yet to fully protect. And as I said before, the McDonald case is a wonderful vehicle for getting the court to begin this process of adopting a truly originalist understanding of the 14th Amendment. Alan? The McDonald case is a wonderful vehicle to look back at the 14th Amendment because we are asking for the first time in the modern era for the court to see whether or not the Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms is the kind of right that is secured against state violation by the 14th Amendment. And in order to do that, you have to go back in time. You have to look at the history. And we have to do something. We have the opportunity to do something that's never been done before, which is to get to the Supreme Court to take a look at the 14th Amendment's history, to see what that text meant to the people who ratified it, to see what the people intended and hoped it would become. Amazingly, people may find this very surprising, there is not a single Supreme Court decision that actually addresses the history of the 14th Amendment head on. We now have a chance to do that. It doesn't come up very often. And hopefully the court will be able to reexamine the horrible mistake that made in Slaughterhouse and finally recognize that American citizens enjoy a broad sense of privileges and immunities. Judging by the page count on the opinion written by Antonin Scalia in the Heller decision, it seemed like he had that opinion almost written in his desk waiting for the opportunity to pull it out. But in a case like this, are there justices that are chomping at the bit to get a nice, clean, teed-up case on the 14th Amendment? Well, Justice Thomas has indicated before in, in a dissenting opinion a few years ago that it was time that the court take a clean look at the Privileges and Immunities Clause. Over the history of the Supreme Court uh, since the 14th Amendment, we've had a total of 12 justices 
who have uh, at one point or another said that this needs to be reexamined. Unfortunately, we've never had five at, at the same time. And we're hoping that we do have five today that can incorporate the Second Amendment using the Privileges and Reuse Clause, not merely through the construct of, of due process. I think this case touches on an interesting tension on the court, and that is that the Constitution is a charter of liberty, and the 14th Amendment is emphatically an amendment that is about liberty. And yet, I think it's fair to say that on the modern court, there's a very strong predilection towards minimalism, towards essentially allowing the other branches of government to act as they wish, as long as they follow sort of the procedures that are set forward in the Constitution, but not really to imposing any meaningful limits on the power of government. The federal government is supposed to be a government of enumerated and limited powers, and the court really doesn't enforce that provision of the Constitution. The Ninth Amendment, the Fourteenth Amendment, there's all different places in the Constitution that were intended to limit the power of government, but the Supreme Court really stopped enforcing those along the way. And so I think that this case really touches on that fundamental tension between the text of the Constitution, which is a charter of liberty, and the predilections of some justices for a more minimalist majoritarian jurisprudence. And it'll be very interesting to see how that tension resolves. If we go back to the Constitution, the way the framers intended and understood it, they included the power of judicial review because they did not trust the democratic process. The framers felt that democracy was a necessary evil of sorts, but that the Congress and the legislative branch would be the place where factions would conspire against minorities and against the public interest. And the judiciary was the least dangerous branch so long as it was not allied with either of the political branches. However, unfortunately, in more modern times, we've seen some judges and justices want to take a step back and defer to the political process. When the court defers to the political process, it is basically making a decision not to enforce the Constitution because we know very well that politicians, while they take an oath to uphold the Constitution, are really more concerned with other things. They're concerned about satisfying their constituents. They're concerned about getting reelected. If the judges do not enforce the Constitution, nobody will. And it's very important that we get the Supreme Court back into the habit that it should really have been in all these years, and that is enforcing actual constitutional limits. It is the highest law of the land. And if we're going to have a nation that is under the rule of law, that rule of law starts with a judicially enforced constitution that has actual force and meaning to preserve the rights of the people. Okay. Well, let's assume the uh, the case goes well. The Supreme Court finds nine to nothing that the privileges or immunities clause must be restored and uh, let it be sung from the rooftops that that is the case. What's in play, really? What is opened up by doing that? Well, I think that if you look at the history of the 14th Amendment that we discussed earlier, what you see is basically an assault on liberty, particularly by southern states that were trying to maintain newly freed blacks in a state of constructive servitude. Among the rights that were most consistently and you know abusively violated were the right of contract, the right to work in the occupation of your choice, the right to move about in search of better opportunities, the right to own property, and the right to speak freely on any subject of your choice, including at the time, obviously, abolition and equality of rights for races. So I think that those would be among the rights that the court would need to go back and look at because those rights, most of them, the ones that I just described, particularly the economic liberties that I mentioned, are not being enforced in any meaningful way by the Supreme Court today. I would agree with Clark. We do need much better protection for economic liberty rights rights that are clearly encompassed within the traditional meaning of privileges and immunities. There may be other rights as well, of course. The framers of the 14th Amendment were not interested in listing all the possible rights any more than the framers of the Ninth Amendment were interested in listing all the other rights that were retained by the people. It will be up to the court in future cases to decide which rights, which unnumerated rights come within the, the protections of the Privileges and Immunities Clause. But the important thing to consider is that, yes, that is an actual substantive grant of protection for individuals, and it extends well beyond the Bill of Rights to a whole host of other things, including those critical economic rights that are, are so abused in this country today. From what I hear, it seems like what you're talking about might put a lot of conservatives in a in sort of a strange position. That is, they may actually want privileges or immunities clause to be uh, restored, but at the same time, it is conservatives who are typically pounding the podium in opposition to judicial activism. So 
Can you make that right for me? I think that most conservatives, unfortunately, have a completely incoherent understanding of liberty in the Constitution. They tend to support, for example, just on a sort of a right-by-right basis, a variety of unenumerated rights, such as the right to travel, to bring up your own children, to get married, so forth and so on. There's no specific textual basis for any of those rights, but they are absolutely inherent in what it means to be an American citizen and to be a citizen of a free country. What I hope conservatives will do is take this opportunity to recognize that unenumerated rights are every bit as much a part of our constitution as any other tradition that we have, including the tradition of limited government, and they are as vital to this country and to our conception of America as the land of the free as any other right. And they need to just put to rest for a moment their fears about where unenumerated rights might lead and recognize that they are protected by our constitution. Alan? I agree with that completely. And activism is really unhelpful term. If activism means making stuff up, well, nobody supports the idea of making stuff up. However, the constitutional does have clear, explicit textual protection of unenumerated rights. And if you're going to be a conservative who wants to give meaning the true original meaning to the literal text of the framers, assuming that they must have had some reason to include that language in there, you must confront the fact that there are these unenumerated rights and you have to give them actual true force of law. If activism means judicial review, the very nature, the very act of enforcing the Constitution against the government, and you are against that sort of activism, then what you really are in favor is you're in favor of a living constitution that means nothing. It simply evolves to whatever the standards of the day might be announced by the legislature. All right, gentlemen, we will leave it there. Clark Neely, senior attorney at the Institute for Justice and attorney Alan Gura of Gura and Pazeski, who also did the oral argument for the Heller case. Together, you are two-thirds of the legal team for the Heller case, minus Robert A. Levy, the chairman of the Cato Institute and also a board member at the Institute for Justice. If you'd like to learn more about McDonald versus City of Chicago, you can go to chicagoguncase.com. The Heller decision and what led up to it and its immediate aftermath is chronicled in the Cato book, Gun Control on Trial by Brian Doherty. You can get your copy of that book at cato.org. The war in Afghanistan is now eight years old, and it has, since the failure of our military to capture or kill Osama bin Laden, morphed into a nation-building exercise with no endgame. Malou Innocent, foreign policy analyst at the Cato Institute, says questions about Afghanistan shouldn't be driven by the likelihood of victory, but by the net value of fighting a war that is not in our national security interest. She spoke at a Cato policy forum in September. In debates surrounding the war in Afghanistan, a view common among the political and military elite is that if the United States truly committed enough time and resources, possibly hundreds of thousands of troops for another 12 to 14 years, Washington could really turn that country around. General Stanley McChrystal, who commanded Special Operations Forces in Iraq and this summer became the commander of U.S. military operations in Afghanistan, says he hopes to see an improvement on the ground with a fraction of those forces in as little as 18 to 24 months. However, there is a reason why the war in Afghanistan ranks at or near the bottom of polls tracking issues important to the American public and why most Americans who do have an opinion about the war oppose it and oppose any more combat troops. It's because Americans understand intuitively that the question about Afghanistan is not about whether it's winnable, but whether it constitutes a vital national security interest. An essential national debate about whether we should really double down in Afghanistan has yet to be taken place. America still does not have a clearly articulated goal. This is why the conventional wisdom surrounding the war in Afghanistan about whether we should rebuild key institutions and create legitimate political systems is not so much misguided as much as it's misplaced. The issue is not about whether we can, but whether we should. This distinction is oftentimes overlooked. The question of what we can do in Afghanistan looks troubling. I have spoken to Western ambassadors, U.S. troops who have returned from Afghanistan, provincial Afghan tribal chiefs, and I am overwhelmed with a feeling that no matter how much we pour into Afghanistan, it shouldn't be measured in years, but in decades, many decades. And right now the policy requires more troops than we can ever send. Add to that the burden of the spiraling financial crisis, and the time and resources required will not be accomplished within costs acceptable to the American public. 
Only recently has the debate surrounding the war in Afghanistan moved from the can to the should. Should we remain in Afghanistan? The answer, when stacked against our own interests and our own objective of dismantling, defeating, and disrupting al-Qaeda, is clearly no. Going after al-Qaeda does not require a long-term, large-scale presence in the region for several reasons. First, we must keep in mind that the regular military is wonderful for killing bad guys with disproportionate firepower, destroying enemy troop formations, or bombing their command centers, but not for finding hidden killers like terrorists. Our greatest successes scored against al-Qaeda have not relied on large numbers of U.S. troops. The scalpel of intelligence sharing and foreign close cooperation with foreign law enforcement officials and agencies has done more to round up suspected terrorists than the sledgehammer of military force. In fact, most of the greatest successes scored against al-Qaeda, such as the snatch-and-grab operations that netted Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and Ramzi bin al-Sheib, have not relied on large numbers of U.S. troops. Second, whether we withdraw from Afghanistan or whether we stay, al-Qaeda can twist it into a victory for them and us into weakness. If we withdraw, we appear weak, even though the United States is responsible for almost half of the world's military spending, can project its power to the most inaccessible corners of the globe, and wields one of the planet's largest nuclear arsenals. Still, al-Qaeda can twist withdrawal into weakness. But America also appears weak if we remain there for too long. The military will appear bogged down, the strategy and the mission aimless. And despite our best efforts, military operations will continue to kill Afghan civilians, which will erode support for our presence. In addition, given the ideological nature of terrorism, our purpose and our presence will reinforce the revolutionary cause al-Qaeda seeks to promote. And hand jihadists are a potent recruiting tool they will seek to exploit, as we have seen with the proliferation of Pakistani Taliban across the border. In addition, an extraordinarily costly and open-ended military occupation gives Osama bin Laden and his ilk exactly what they want. America's all-volunteer military force pressed to cope with an irregular, protracted war. Policymakers and the public at large should keep in mind that Osama bin Laden's stated objective is to ensnare us into multiple unending wars and to, quote, bleed America to the point of bankruptcy, unquote. Overall, remaining in Afghanistan is more likely to tarnish America's reputation and undermine U.S. security rather than withdrawal. Third, our policy towards Afghanistan is undermining core U.S. security interests in Pakistan. Here at Cato, we have a saying taken from French philosopher Friedrich Bastiat, that which is seen and that which is not seen. Our drone operations have successfully killed a number of high-value targets and may have even seriously degraded al-Qaeda's global capabilities. But our policies are also pushing the powerful jihadist insurgency across the border into Pakistan, carrying with it potentially devastating implications. For lack of a better analogy, the Afghanistan-Pakistan border is like a balloon. Pushing down on one side forces elements to the other. It doesn't eliminate the threat especially when you consider that the border between these two countries is virtually non-existent. And that's also just essentially a line on Western maps and not in the hearts and minds of the militants that are fighting across this border. Last summer, I was fortunate enough to visit Peshawar, the administrative center of the federally administered tribal areas. I spoke with several South Waziri tribesmen about the collateral damage unleashed by U.S. missile strikes. They noted that airstrikes allow militants to define themselves as a force against the injustice of America's occupation next door and against the Pakistani government. As early as 2007, in response to repeated Pakistani army incursions, along with a growing number of U.S. missile strikes, an amalgamation of over two dozen tribal-based guerrilla groups calling themselves the Taliban began to emerge in the Pakistani border areas. These guerrillas won control of North and South Waziristan and merged into a single outfit known as Tariqi Taliban Pakistan, TTP. After consolidating control in the tribal areas, these militants eventually came down out of the hills and began spilling into major Pakistani cities, fueling the wave of suicide bombings that we've seen over the past several years. Before 9-11, terrorist attacks in Lahore were completely unheard of. Now they happen with increasing frequency. There's also been an influx of Pashtun militants in Karachi, Pakistan's industrial hub, causing major political and social tensions there. Unfortunately for Pakistanis, because the United States is literally oceans away, it is they, not us, who have borne the brunt of targets by insurgents. It is also why the State Department's 2009 terrorism report, despite finding an overall decline in terrorist attacks worldwide, discovered that attacks within Pakistan have more than quadrupled from 2006 to 2008. Unfortunately, Present U.S. policy is pushing militants deeper into Pakistani cities, strengthening the powerful jihadist insurgency, 
and pressing this weakened nuclear-armed country in the direction of civil war. There are many other reasons why a large-scale long-term military presence is counterproductive to our interests, and it's a subject that I've written on extensively. But I want to make sure I leave enough time for Q&A, so I'll just leave you with this. I think perhaps the worst thing we can do is leave the region entirely. It's what we did after nearly a decade of funding the Mujahideen, and we paid for it dearly eight years ago last Friday. But there are also costs remaining in the region, not simply in terms of manpower and resources, but in giving al-Qaeda what it wants, pushing the conflict over into Pakistan, and looking weak by remaining indefinitely, yet possibly accomplishing very little. America should scale down its military presence in the region, continue open relations and intelligence sharing with all countries in the region, deploy special forces for discrete operations against specific targets when feasible, and engage in intensive surveillance as it already does today. Whether al-Qaeda coalesces in Sudan or in Yemen or in Miami, Florida, our policy should not be to redesign a foreign people's way of life or tinker with the importance of their communal identity. As the war in Afghanistan rages on, President Obama should be skeptical of suggestions that the defeat of al-Qaeda depends on a massive troop presence. But I fear that the longer we stay and the more money we spend, the more we'll feel compelled to remain in the region to validate that investment. A similar self-imposed predicament plagued U.S. policymakers during the war in Vietnam. But we draw the wrong lesson from that conflict. Not that America should avoid intervening in another country's disputes, but that America should never give up after having intervened, no matter what the costs. The political discourse has already shifted to whether this has become Obama's Vietnam. I believe that whether it will be or not is entirely his decision. Reporter Jan Crawford Greenberg has had unprecedented access to members of our highest court. And she has unique insights into just what happens when a new justice puts on the robe. She spoke at the Cato Institute's Constitution Day events in September. The other open question is what that justice will do to that court, the new justice making a new court. How will she step in, cause justices to perhaps rethink their views, or reposition themselves, create new alliances? And that happens repeatedly. I think that one of the more striking examples was when Justice Thomas joined the court. Now, I've talked a lot, and some of you I know have heard me tell this story, but again, I think it's useful when we think about how we kind of analyze the way a new court will look and why we should not ever assume anything. When Justice Thomas joined the court, again, thinking back, another historic moment for George H.W. Bush. The year before, he'd replaced William Brennan with David Souter, The following year, another liberal giant, Thurgood Marshall, retires. He nominates Clarence Thomas. Again, conservatives believed that this was the moment that they had been waiting for to undo all these rulings of the Warren court. And after those brutal confirmation hearings, Clarence Thomas joined that court. And the storyline very quickly developed, if you recall, that he was just following Scalia that, you know, whatever Justice Scalia said, the brilliant conservative intellect, Thomas was right there with him. And in the research, I came across articles even in the Post that described quotes describing Justice Thomas as a lackey of Justice Scalia, a lapdog of Justice Scalia. And that story is grossly, demonstrably, and I think offensively false. And if anything happened that term, it was Justice Scalia who would change his votes after the conferences to join Justice Thomas, not the other way around. But what happened that term was, you know, people would see Thomas and Scalia voting together and began writing that Thomas was following Scalia. But in case after case from Thomas's first day, his first conference on that court, he was willing to stand alone as a forceful, independent voice. And then we would see Justice Scalia subsequently sometimes change his vote decide with Justice Thomas from his first day. This is all in the papers of Harry Blackman. Say what you will about Justice Blackman as a justice, but he was one hell of a note taker. And in the conference, he would write down what each justice would say about a particular case, and then he would write a plus or a minus if they thought the case should be affirmed or reversed. So you can look at Justice Blackman's conference notes and then follow that to see how the justices then kind of end up at the end. And he saved everything, every memo, everything. So, you know, it's really kind of shocking, actually, that not particularly flattering of Justice Blackman, including the questions his law clerks uh, wrote for him to ask on the bench. 
But in that first conference, Justice Thomas had a case, the court had a case called uh, Fuchsia versus Louisiana and involved an inmate who'd been found not guilty by reason of insanity and he wanted to get out of the mental institution in Louisiana. The state wanted to keep him there. Rehnquist leads off the conversation, voting kind of surprisingly for the inmate. Conversation goes around the table. Each justice falls in line behind the Chief Justice Rehnquist. It got to Justice Thomas, the junior justice, his first conference to cast a vote in a case. And he paused. And he said it was a very difficult case. Again, this is in the Blackman papers. But he was going to cast his vote with Rehnquist. He couldn't sleep that night. The next morning, he went back to see William Rehnquist, and he said, that was wrong. I threw in the towel. That's not how I saw that case. I want to change my vote. So Rehnquist said, okay. Except for Rehnquist, he had that okay, that deep voice that everyone, you know, people who clerk for Rehnquist weirdly kind of, they always talk like Rehnquist. I don't know if you've noticed that. So he said, you know, fine, uh, write your dissent. So Thomas uh, writes this dissent, circulates it around six weeks or so later. The chief justice sends a note around to the conference. He's going to change his vote. A couple days later, Scalia sends a note around. He's changing his vote. A couple days after that, Kennedy, now the court, you know, our human jump ball, he sends a note around. He, too, is going to change his vote. So that case that started out 9-0 in the conference, next morning 8-1, ended up being 5-4, and it happened repeatedly that term. Clarence Thomas was willing to stand alone, take these forceful, independent views, and then Scalia or another justice would change their mind to join him. But again, of course, the storyline was that Thomas was following with Scalia. Instead, what was happening was that that was creating this internal dynamic. And again, this is in the Blackman Papers, too, where um, Justice O'Connor, you know, the swing vote, the moderate, the former state legislator, the one who kind of wanted to balance, started to back away. And you can see it in all her memos that term. She's almost bristling with some of these conservative views, particularly on habeas, that term, that Justice Thomas is writing and advocating. She did not join a single dissent he wrote that term, even though she was often on the same side of an issue, but she never would sign on to one of his dissents. So that term, we saw a staunch, solid, forceful, independent, conservative Clarence Thomas join the court. And completely counterintuitively, we saw that court turn a bit to the left, putting Roe versus Wade on more solid ground than ever before with Casey. That was that term. Lee versus Wiseman, outlawing school prayer graduations. That year, the court didn't turn, of course, to the right like everyone thought. And in fact, Justice O'Connor began her drift to the left, where really she stayed until the end. So this term, and I think, again, I know this is looking ahead, but I think when we look ahead, it's helpful to look back so that we don't, you know, get too far ahead in thinking that we know a justice is going to be a certain way or a court is going to be a certain way. And we already have seen now Justice Sotomayor on the bench in her first argument, which I must admit I was just dying to see how she was going to be. Uh, Would she be forceful? Would she just kind of stand back and take stock of things? Was she going to jump right in and perhaps start as conservative as hope, causing Justice Kennedy to feel a little more at home permanently in the conservative wing of that court? When Justice Alito joined the court, again, someone I think with kind of comparable experience on the right from Sotomayor on the left, He um, deliberately decided that he would not be aggressive at oral argument his first year, that he was going to stand back, kind of just get a lay of the land. He felt like he'd made a mistake when he joined the Third Circuit because he immediately started casting votes for rehearing uh, or on banc before he'd even really heard an argument. And that offended some of his new appeals court colleagues. So he didn't want to make that mistake when he joined the Supreme Court, and he was quiet his first term. Now he's not. He's very effective on the bench, and certainly with Justice Kennedy, I think. But Sotomayor surprised me. She was quite feisty and kind of aggressively talking about what was the record below and why was this even an issue. And then at one point, even saying, you know, maybe the Supreme Court had even created this mess because, you know, it was the court that said corporations should be treated as persons. So I was kind of like, whoa, she's really, you know, she's going to have something to say here. But again, I mean, this term, as I said, there are several cases that will give us a chance, not only for the court, major cases, as Ilya said, for constitutional grounds, major separation of powers case that we're going to hear some more about, of course, too, the campaign finance case, the frontal assault on campaign finance laws, but also will give us our first window into new Justice Sotomayor.
Why has speech been so restricted for so long in politics? And why do media corporations get more free speech rights than others? Bradley Smith, former Federal Election Commissioner and head of the Center for Competitive Politics, says the Supreme Court's task in grappling with political speech is a simple one, restore the First Amendment. He spoke at Cato's Hayek Auditorium in September. Of course, corporations only have rights that go as far as their members, as their people. Of course, they're not citizens in a sense. Lots of entities are not citizens. If the police came in here and broke up this meeting, they would be breaking up a meeting of the Cato Institute. Well, what is the Cato Institute? You can't feel it. It can't walk down the street. It doesn't vote. Does it have Fourth, Fifth, or Sixth Amendment rights? No, but the people do. We do. The people who are the Cato Institute. Corporations aren't created by the state. I mean, now and then the state does create a corporation, but it's a general rule they're not created by the state. They're created by people, and the state recognizes that as part of a legal regime just as it recognizes contracts between people and property rules between people. It sets forth a legal regime that governs affairs. And some states have bad legal regimes and some states have good, wise legal regimes. And that has much to do with how well governed those states are. So, of course, corporations have rights only insofar as they consist of people. But, of course, corporations consist of people. And people have associational rights in the First Amendment to speak as well. Corporate speech has no value whatsoever? Well, of course it has value. I mean, look at the very case of Austin. This is the Michigan Chamber of Commerce, and they're running an ad saying, look, we got a special election going on for the state Senate. The winning party is going to control the state Senate. If it's the Republicans, we'll get work comp reform, and businesses will flock to Michigan, and we know that years from now, Jennifer Granholm will never become governor, and it will be a great place, and the auto industry will never need a bailout. It didn't quite go that far, but that's what its position was. And, but if the Democrats win, on the other hand, the whole state will go down the toilet, right? And so you should vote for Richard Banstro, the Republican candidate. That's a very meaningful thing to say, and it's meaningful precisely because it comes from the Michigan Chamber of Commerce, not because it comes from, from individual people who may or may not be members of the chamber, not because it comes from companies that are members, because it comes from that corporation. Just like it would be meaningful for a corporation to say, look, our congressman voted against that stimulus bill. Now, we're going to go under without a stimulus uh, check. So uh, we need to elect that congressman. So we're going to run ads saying, folks, get out there and vote for congressman. Uh, tell him to vote for his challenger who's going to support the stimulus bill. That's a meaningful thing for the people there to hear. All right? Now, it's not like this speech is these dollars spent on ads are then stuffed into a ballot box. You hear the speech and you decide who you want to vote for. And at that point, it begins to sound an awful lot like speech. And the fact that some of the people who are allowed to speak is not identical overlap to the people who have the right to vote is really pretty much irrelevant. Associations of people speak all the time as associations of people. And that's what they are. Now, Let's look at the practical elements here, right? We focus a lot on the big corporations, right? All the corporations that support the Brennan Center, like Bear Stearns and Enron and stuff, right? But let's talk about, you know, those corporations have lobbyists, and they got tons of money. They've got a lot of influence, and they're going to have that influence. Who really is going to benefit from this? The fact is you can't be holding everything back to some idea of corporations formed 200 years ago when it was a new thing and government didn't quite know what to do. And even democracy and the idea that the people created the government was a new idea. Corporations were beginning to sprout at the same time as this idea that, you know, uh, government controls everything. You can't do anything unless government permits it. And we kind of held that over in corporate life. But nowadays, everybody's incorporated. You can go out. You could be sitting here before I'm done talking. If you got your laptop, you can incorporate yourself, right? It's pretty easy to do. So get to it. Everybody's a corporation. And this idea that corporations are special is just wrong. There are 
Seven million or more corporations in the United States, fewer than 2,500 of them have active PACs. Because you can't form a PAC if you're not a big corporation. You can't afford the cost of administering it, and you don't have enough people to solicit to get money into it. So when the court says in these decisions you can ban corporate speech as long as there's a PAC option, maybe that's exactly right. And the reason Austin should be overturned is that for the overwhelming majority of corporate associations in the United States, there is no realistic pack option. Vague laws, more laws, and more of them, federal laws. Combine those three and you get many U.S. citizens unwittingly committing felonies on a daily basis. Author Harvey Silverglade explores the criminal liability of everyday existence in his new book, Three Felonies a Day. He spoke at the Cato Institute in October. Let me explain for a moment the title, Three Felonies a Day. It's slightly sarcastic, maybe slightly humorous, but the notion is this. An average busy professional in this country gets up in the morning, you know, gets the kids off to school, goes to work, uses the telephone, there we go, federal offense, uses the telephone or email, has meetings, or works on a prospectus or a bank loan or whatever, goes home, puts the kids to bed as dinner, uh, reads the newspaper, goes to sleep, and has no idea that in the course of that day, he or she has very likely committed three felonies, three felonies that some ambitious uh, creative prosecutor can pick out of that day, day's activities and put into an indictment if the feds so want. And that's, as I said, a slight exaggeration, but really not much. I want to also point out the phenomenon that I'm not talking about. I'm not talking about federalism. Do I personally believe the federal government has usurped areas that should remain with the states? I do, and I also think we're much better off leaving them to the states because the states actually do a better job in a lot of these kinds of criminal areas. But I'm not talking about federalism. I'm also not talking about another problem over criminalization, which I know that Cato is very active in dealing with right now. There are so many crimes on the books, the explosion of uh, criminal statutes. I think that's a huge problem. But when you at least can understand them, then you at least have a leg up because if you, you know, you can navigate a day if you understand what the law says, you can presumably navigate a day without becoming a criminal. But when the statutes are vague, you're helpless. You're totally at the mercy of the government because nobody can figure out. Even if you wanted to be a slave, you couldn't figure out how to be a slave because you didn't, you don't know what you should refrain from doing. So this is a problem separate from, although somewhat related to, the others. Now, Alan Dershowitz wrote a forward to the book, and he was completely free, of course, to write what he wanted. Some of his theories of how to solve this problem I actually don't agree with, and some I do. But he has a very interesting paragraph about he, Dershowitz litigated some cases in the old Soviet Union, and he was always taken by the fact that they could prosecute anybody they want because, you know, some of the statutes were so vague, you know, they outlawed hooliganism, see. And of course, who was a hooligan? I guess depended on whether the government in power liked you or didn't like you, and that's how they determined if you were a hooligan. He points out in the forward that it, this was a technique developed by Beria, who was the infamous sidekick to Stalin, who said, quote, show me the man and I'll find you the crime, close quote. And that really is something that has survived the Soviet Union, has in fact crossed continents, and has arrived here in the good old USA. Show me the man that says any federal prosecutor, and I can show you the crime. We are, it's not an exaggeration, ask anybody who's been indicted, ask anybody who's tried one of these crazy cases, it is not an exaggeration. It may not have hit everybody in this room yet, but it certainly can and certainly will hit a few. Now, how does this play out in the United States? 
Why is it that the department does this, the Department of Justice? Well, to some extent, this weapon is aimed at unpopular citizens and members of unpopular or suspicious groups. It isn't, I think, the primary impetus, but it certainly is a tool, for example, for going after these days Muslims, people in a political party out of power. You know, anybody who happens to be a target for any reason, they go after. But it's hardly limited to just unpopular groups. For the most part, I think these uh, prosecutions are random. They sometimes have a lot to do with ambitions of prosecutors and wanting to get their name in the papers. And sometimes there are prosecutors with psychological disabilities that sort of, they think that it's their job to clean up the world, to clean up the country from dishonest people. But, you know, uh, fundamentally, I don't really understand all of the motives that go into the use of these weapons. I only can tell you, I mean, I'm not a sociologist, I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist. I can just tell you that these weapons are sprung with alarming frequency and increasing frequency. What's wrong with American healthcare? After the death of his father, David Goldhill, CEO of the Game Show Network, went on a fact-finding mission. He found that one big problem in American healthcare is that you aren't the customer. You're the consumer, to be sure, but the insurance company or the government is the customer, and the customer is always right. Goldhill spoke at a Cato Capitol Hill briefing in October. My obsession with what happened to my father and my own lack of a personal life or other interests enabled me to spend about a year and a half really asking some questions about healthcare. And many of you probably work in this area and are going to be completely unshocked by what I say. So let me tell you, looking at it, it all shocked me. The things that shocked me most, my mother's bill. My mother's bill was itemized. It was actually $636,000. So I did some some fun things. I've actually tried this at dinner parties with friends who talk about their medical bills. I tried to buy everything on the bill. He's in an ICU room in an Upper East Side New York hospital. Let's say I rented him a suite at the Four Seasons, which is frankly a much more comfortable room, the most expensive hotel in New York for five weeks. He's got specialized equipment. I'll lease it. I'll pay for his doctors to exclusively see him two hours a day. I'll pay for 24-hour nursing. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you do all this stuff, and it's easy to do, right? You can calculate it. And you wind up with a number that not only is a fraction of $636,000, but none of which has any relationship to the charges you're seeing. None. The bill means nothing. It's never intended to be paid by anyone, right? The Medicare didn't pay that. Medicare paid a fraction of it. So when you're a businessman and you see that prices have no meaning, price is the basic information tool in capitalism. How do we have a system where price has no meaning and we think it's in any way about competition or free enterprise? It can't be. Prices are our, our number one information tool. So that was shocking to me. And then I went and looked at my company's health plan. And I said, all right, let's say you're a 23-year-old kid joining our company in an entry-level job. Maybe you're paid $30,000, $35,000 a year. We have a pretty good health plan. If you're single, we probably would bear about $6,500 a year. If you're married somewhere closer to 10, and if you've got a family, somewhere in the low to mid-teens, 12.5 to 14, depending on which, which state you live in. So I said, all right, let's look at that 23-year-old, and let's crunch some numbers. Let's look at how much we pay for that person's care, because after all, that's just, if you're a businessman, you know that's just coming out of wages, right? When we hire somebody, we don't look at their salary. We look at their total cost to us, right? And we decide whether to create a job or not based on whether that total cost to us is acceptable. So if your health insurance adds, if you're entry level and that health insurance is adding 20, 25% to your cost of our hiring you, that's how we view you costing us. It doesn't matter what your paycheck says. It's irrelevant to us. But let's look at that 23-year-old. We're paying some of the insurance. They're paying some of the insurance. He or she will have some out-of-pocket every year. They're paying Medicare tax. We're paying Medicare tax. What I didn't look at until later... I didn't realize how big it was, is the percentage of the general taxes they pay that's going to subsidize Medicare, Medicaid, nothing. So I just excluded that. And then I said, all right, over your lifetime, what's going to happen? 
well, on average, your income will grow 3% a year. And then I made a crazy assumption, which is that healthcare costs grow only 3% a year. As many of us know, since well before Medicare, healthcare costs have been growing in excess of income. Let's make this crazy assumption just to see where the numbers come out. And let's run that over this person's life. Gets married, has a couple kids, kids grow up, they leave, back to the empty nest, retires at 65, lives to 80. Has one or two health incidences that maybe cause a little burst and out of pocket over their lives. But let's just look at the input for a second. The number's unbelievable to me. It's $1.7 million for an entry-level person whose income's growing 3% a year. So when they retire at 65, they'll earn $105,000 a year. $1.7 million. It's unsustainable. Now, here's why we think it's sustainable. Only roughly about 20%, somewhere between 20 and 25% of that money ever passed through my 23-year-old's wallet. It was Medicare tax. It was subsidies. It was the company paying on their behalf. It's hidden. But it's $1.7 million. It's 40% of that person's income. And as we all know listening to the debates on health care, that's one of the lucky ones, right? He's got employer-supplied insurance. Now, we also know that healthcare, there's nothing that's going to make healthcare costs grow equal to our income other than miraculous intervention. That's a number that shocked me. Another number that shocked me is Medicare. Oh, not how much Medicare is costing the government and it's going to bankrupt the government and we got to We all know that, right? That's background noise. Government going to be bankrupted by Medicare. That's not what was interesting to me. What was interesting to me is that the average senior citizen today seems to be paying a significantly greater percentage of their income out of pocket than the average senior citizen was in 1964. So forget about, forget about what it's done to the government. It's not a perfect statistic to calculate, but at this point it seems that the average senior citizens are paying something in the high teens of income out of pocket. Now obviously there's a lot of variation. For some senior citizens who have extraordinary expenses, this feels great. But what's interesting is almost nobody I mention that to ever nods and says, yeah, of course. We've gotten to a point, we've evolved so slowly here, that the whole point of Medicare, which was to protect seniors from the crushing burden of health care, has failed. From the perspective of seniors, and they're not aware of it, let's face it, most of us are not, because we get gradually used to a certain reality and we deal with that. So that was shocking to me. The size of Medicaid is shocking to me not because when you add it all together it's $350 billion, but because of the type of safety net you could build with $350 billion. You know, I am a Democrat and thought of myself as reasonably left. I know I have a lot of company here. But, you know, you got $360 billion and you are not covering 15% of the population. I have to say, why? When you add to $200 million we're subsidizing Medicare, you could literally buy catastrophic insurance for 100 million people and give each of them a $3,000 check each year. So what does that mean? You have a poor family of four. That's a $12,000 amount to spend on health care or save. It's extraordinary. How is it on $360 billion? We're not doing that. That was, as an outsider, as someone not involved in the debates, just shocking. There's now one insurance company employee for every two doctors. That's incredible to me. This is a system being eaten by intermediaries. And by the way, we're all bad at our job. I'm an intermediary. Why on earth anyone thinks an employer is going to be good at disciplining health care costs and results, I have no idea. That's not what we do for a living. I'm in the game show business. I am not in the health care business, and every single one of these employers being given mandates is not in the health care business. Why we're relied on to exercise the discipline the system needs, it's absurd. The insurance companies whose primary role is that have already failed at it. Why employers will be good at it, I have no idea. But we have grown at the point now where the cost of insurance itself, just the cost of the system, just what we have to pay for intermediaries, is $500 per American per year. It's what we used to pay on health care before Medicare per American per year. That's just the cost of administration. The other thing that I thought was funny, and there are two ways to view this, I admit, is that spending by uninsured is almost equal to spending by insured out of pocket. Now, one way to look at it is to say, well, sure, but the insured spend four or five times of other people's money, what the uninsured do. The uninsured are not getting adequate care. And that may be right. But there's another way to look at it, which says they're both spending up to the marginal utility of care, and it's almost exactly the same number. 
It gets at the key moral hazard issue at the heart of debates about whether insurance should finance health care. Let me tell you the last thing that shocked me. When we talk about, and this directly obviously comes from my father's experience, when we talk about health care in this country, we don't talk about quality. We talk about money. Nobody is talking about, are we getting a good deal for $2.5 trillion? Is our health care any good? Are we achieving results? We just ask, can we pay for it? And I will tell you as a businessman, I can think of no other place, maybe outside of government spending, where that occurs among consumers, among businesses, their financiers. Nobody ever says, can we pay for it instead of, is it worth it? Are we getting value? I've read some excellent books. I think the book Overtreated by Brownlee is a terrific book. She suggests that as much as one quarter of health care may have negative impact on our health. I think we have forgotten what the purpose of health care is. It's health. And if we're not buying health, what exactly are we spending the money on? And again, an outsider's astonishment. Are we really talking about how to pay for something without knowing if it creates any value? The reality I began to see as I looked at some of these numbers is that healthcare is an island. It's an intentional island. We in our souls believe there's something different about healthcare. And as I've gotten into this discussion, a few of the talks I've done, there's been someone from the other side, of the other point of view, who emphasizes this. And I'm not sure if that's right. I mean, clearly there are some things that are different about healthcare. You know, there are things that are different about everything. There are things that are different about game shows. I'd be proud to talk about them. But the question becomes, in our effort to deal with what's different, have we made it so much more different that we've created this terrible series of perverse incentives and disincentives that have produced results we've had? A couple things I've noticed. One, insurance. Insurance is a financial product designed to protect against rare, large, and unpredictable occurrences. Most of healthcare is uninsurable. It just is. It's just you cannot use insurance as a way to finance something that is predictable and small. The moral hazard issues are too great, the administrative cost is too massive, and the degree in which you separate the consumer from the provider through an intermediary is too damaging. Outside of healthcare, insurance is used exclusively for what I described. And the problem with the insurance model, cost I've mentioned, is moral hazard. Moral hazard is so pervasive in our healthcare system that it is fundamentally, not exclusively, but fundamentally the thing that is not just driving up costs, but is creating treatment well in excess of what we demand and often at great risk to our health. Uh, it is everywhere, and it is unquestioned. I read a study that Johns Hopkins did about four or five years ago in which it made the argument that roughly 40% of Americans have a chronic condition, and therefore we need an expansion of the insurance safety net. And I thought to myself, how can you insure... One out of every two people. Where else would you do that? It's not that you can't pay for them. It's not that you can't finance them. But would you use insurance? If one out of two of our homes was going to burn down, do we really believe insurance would be the right way to finance that? It was so unquestioned, though, is what I've seen everywhere I've looked in healthcare. Some people refer to health insurance as healthcare. A lot of politicians are guilty of this. How many politicians have you heard say 15% of America has no healthcare when they mean no health insurance? Insurance is a form of financing. And it is almost totally inappropriate for most healthcare. And yet, not only is it exclusively what we use, but it's a model that we endlessly stretch. Let's look at the rest of our economy and see where insurance provides value for its extraordinary cost and where it doesn't. But we won't do that. The other thing I see in healthcare that I don't see in other places is cost is regarded as something exogenous to the system, independent of demand, as if it's imported from some other planet. If you're a business person, you know cost is a function of demand. I'll give you the Tom Cruise example. This is not about Tom Cruise's healthcare. The cost of using Tom Cruise in a Tom Cruise movie went up radically over a 10-year period. So the Tom Cruise in a Tom Cruise movie cost a minimum of $25 million. Nothing changed about Tom Cruise. Not his molecules, not his haircut, you know, not his skill. Why were people willing to pay $25 million for a Tom Cruise movie at the end and $10 million before? To a movie maker, the cost went up, right? But of course, what happened is the DVD explosion happened. I can get more revenue out of a Tom Cruise movie. I have a better chance of getting more revenue if I hire Tom Cruise as opposed to if I hire, I don't know, let's say me. 
It's really easy when you're in the entertainment business to recognize that every cost is just somebody's paycheck or somebody's dividend check. That's all it is. We're not grabbing moon rocks and turning them into drugs. When you decide to introduce a product, you are doing so at a price point you think the market will bear, not because of what your costs are. Your costs then drive from that. And in healthcare, there seems to be no awareness. People talk about rising costs of healthcare as if it's not something driven by rising demand. What we have in healthcare is rising prices. And once you have rising prices, then you have rising costs. Why? Because you'll bid more for everything. If my movie can go from earning $100 million to $200 million, I'll pay more for Tom Cruise. If I can sell an MRI at $1,500, I'll pay more for the machine. GE and Siemens will put more features in the machine. They will charge more, and they will pay their suppliers more, and so on and so on. And what looks to people like cost pushing up prices is, if you've been in any other business other than healthcare, is prices pushing up costs. And prices, of course, get pushed up by demand. And this fundamental idea, which struck me as just bizarre, and is, you know, I only really hear it, let's face it, in government-funded services, you hear it in education, you hear it in defense, that costs exist independently. I saw a proposal to mitigate cost control in healthcare by requiring people to pay no more than CPI plus one. And I thought, how interesting. Why do you assume prices should grow by CPI, much less CPI plus one? Look, I can make you a case for an industry that in the last 40 years saw massive increases in productivity at the skilled professionals at its core in infusion in technology that enabled much more rapid, much more complete diagnosis, reduced the amount of labor it took to get the diagnosis, a change in procedures that meant that recovery from most surgery is a day instead of three weeks, the introduction of pharmaceuticals that took intensive hands-on treatment and made it about a pill whose marginal cost to produce is one cent. And if I described that industry to you and took out some key words, you would sit there if you were a Wall Street analyst and say, I don't know how they're going to keep their prices up. That is literally the description of what causes prices to decline in every other industry on earth except this one. And if you come from the outside world and look at it, you sort of scratch your head when you hear people confidently say, it's about technology pushing the prices up. I wrote my article on a Mac that cost, I think, one one-thousandth of the price of the typical computer when I was a kid and obviously can do things that that computer couldn't dream of doing. Same time frame. I've run technology companies. There's this assumption that the cost of technology is the cost of discovery, or the guys in the white coats, you know, that's not it. It's commercialization. All technology is commercialization. We already know how to do things. It's when they become commercial, how they become commercial, how we price them. That's what technology is. It's not these miraculous discoveries that we have to pay for. It's absurd. And if you lived in any other industry on earth, you would see that. I mentioned the confusion of money spent and quality, which you see everywhere in healthcare. And again, if you exist, I mean, the rest of us should be so lucky that we could get our consumers to believe that the amount of money they spent determined the quality of our product. There's another thing that I see in healthcare that surprises me as a businessman, which is that efficiency is, is somehow about process instead of about results. You cannot predict what's going to be efficient. It's the reason we have markets. They do things that seem inefficient, that drive better results. One of my favorite books, I always recommend this book highly, I think I may be the only person who read it, was a book called The Box. And further undermining my, my reputation for not having much of a life, The Box is a history of the shipping container. We're not going to make a movie out of it. The point of The Box is, the shipping container is the most idiotic idea in the history of mankind. I am going to take all products, no matter what they look like, no matter what their shape is, and I'm going to put them in a standardized box to ship them. So if they're nice little boxes that fit in a box, great. If they're motorcycles, they still go in the box. You've got to put the motorcycle in another box to put it in a box. The most inefficient thing you can imagine. And of course, the introduction of the shipping container was opposed by everybody. Governments, businesses, unions. It's inefficient. It's absurd. It only survived and thrived because it worked. Because the reality is, accepting the inefficiency of standardization led to far greater efficiency. And it's a fascinating history. I mean, almost all of globalization is because of the shipping container. Almost every reason for where every manufacturer on Earth now is located is because of the shipping container. The idea was a box. That's it. 
It's fascinating to think of. And when you work in business, you see this all the time. You see efficiency as a result of some guy trying this, it doesn't work, some guy trying that, it doesn't work. And it's often the thing that if you look top down, you thought would work doesn't. It's an accident. We all use computers, right? Computers take a simple keystroke and make it eight keystrokes. That's inefficient. You could just see somebody saying, what a total waste of time, right? I need eight zeros and ones to get the A I had before. Obviously, efficiencies and results. It's not in process. And it's one of the things that makes top-down regulation of healthcare so difficult. It's so complex, so individual, that it doesn't work well. And then finally, I will use what must be the most overworked metaphor in this. There is a fundamental confusion in healthcare between symptoms and diseases. Underuse of IT is my favorite one. You know, you can look at any study that says that the rate of return on information technology investment in healthcare would be extraordinary. 80%, 90%, 100%. We put $40 billion in, we'll get $40 billion in savings back. So a lot of people nod their head and say, let's put $40 billion in. That's sort of not the way I look at it. Why on earth is there, I mean, I love it when I can get an extra, you know, tenth of a basis point on my treasury bonds. Why on earth is an 80% IRR investment not being made by an industry? What does it tell you that nobody in the industry can capture that gain? That's the problem. The IT is just the symptom. Buy them the IT, they still won't use it. Because what makes people use IT isn't the box sitting on their desk. It's the fact that you use it to ensure you know, better patient care, more transparency, portability of records, all things that help the customer. If helping the customer doesn't get you to invest on your own in the technology, why do you think having someone invest for you is going to get you to do that? It's not. That's not what technology is and how people use it. That's a symptom of an underlying problem that we're not the customer. And it's an important symptom. I hear all the time, you know what we got to do? we got to make everybody operate like the Mayo Clinic or Cleveland. You hear that all the time. And as a business person, you step back and say, wait a minute. Why doesn't everyone operate like that? If those are better models for customers, and it looks like they may well be, why haven't they won? Why haven't they organically triumphed? Why do we have worse models winning? So we can put together a lot of regulations that say act more like Mayo, or we can try to understand why everybody isn't already like Mayo and fix that. That's the disease. And finally, high profits. A lot of people say that high profits are a problem in this industry. Well, we just gave the profits away. And you know, one of the things I mentioned in the article is if we confiscated all health industry profits, I think we'd pay for something like two weeks of our health care. In fact, if we confiscated everybody's profits, Every industry, we'd pay for less than five months of our health care. We'd have a very difficult economy as well. High profits is a symptom. The fact that you can persistently have high returns on equity in a business indicates that the pricing mechanism, which is supposed to drive more capacity and price, which would self-drive, isn't working. High profits aren't the problem. They're the symptom of the problem. Now in paperback, The Dirty Dozen, How 12 Supreme Court Cases Radically Expanded Government and Eroded Freedom. It's by Robert Levy, chairman of the Cato Institute, and Chip Miller, president of the Institute for Justice. It is a guide to the worst Supreme Court decisions of the modern era, and it now includes highlights of new and critical issues that have arisen over the past year. Dirty Dozen in paperback is available at catostore.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.